Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Luca, managing partner and co-founder of Unatera, a 200 million euro venture capital fund to accelerate European scale-ups, fostering solutions to climate change, biodiversity loss, and targeting the removal of two gigatons of CO2 and one million tons of plastic waste per year from the environment by 2030. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Welcome to the European VC Podcast. Back in 2022 and early 2022, together with Uplink, a project by the World Economic Forum, we launched a challenge for innovative investment funds with a focus across at least one of eight key SDG areas. Nature, ocean, plastics, climate action, circular economy, water, health, and education. This campaign, a partnership between Uplink, EOVC, Isomer Capital, and other great names, aimed to source and select innovative funds investing in purpose-driven startups around the world. Now, the European VC has always and will always be European-focused, but saving our planet is too much of an important topic for us to just stand idle. So, today, we're proud to present one of the 17 funds selected that is mobilizing capital for people and the planet. We are welcoming Luca from Uniterra. Luca, why do you think Uniterra was nominated as one of the innovative funds for our future by Uplink? Thank you for having us here today, David. Very excited. Why we were one of the innovative funds for our future? We believe that is because, A, we are not only just one of these Article 9 funds, but we are focused on having a significant impact, and we track that impact at the company level and at the fund level with specific KPIs, in particular CO2 emissions and plastic waste that has been removed. And that uh, makes it very tangible, both for our investors and for the company we work with. And second, we are so convinced of what we're doing that we put a stake our own carry on the achievement of those KPIs. So not only the financial KPIs have to be at par or even better than what you would expect in VC, but also the uh, environmental one. And the final part is that we have a really good balance between a team that is the traditional investing team from, you know, let me say a financial background that you would expect, but we also have a good portion of our team that, as you would find in private equity, has very much an operating background. So we can really help companies growing faster with commercial introductions, with market entry, with partnership that we can develop with them, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the reasons why we got selected, or at least that's the feedback I got from the team. I think you raised some cool things, and I was taking here some notes, and I can see Andreas is going over my notes and kind of agreeingly. So, you know, two things I took note here is obviously metrics, right? So it's impact, but how do you measure that? But kind of an outcome of that that I find super interesting is that the carry is on the line, right? And in, in full disclosure, I clearly remember a conversation we had with an emerging GP last year that was thinking about doing this. And going through this whole process of how do I set this up? You know, it's I'm tinkering with something, right? And I want to make sure I do it right. I don't want to create perverse incentives and I, I want it to be somewhat market standard, whatever. So, Luca, it would be awesome to hear your reflections on that process inside of Unitera, right? How did you come up with your model today? And no need to disclose all the details, but do disclose everything you feel comfortable with disclosing at this stage. 
the way we came up with Unetera is that we were doing investing before uh, as partners in, in areas like, you know, corporate venturing with a large corporation and some VC as well. And when we got together, we said, oh, first of all, how do we interview LPs, investors, and also companies we would invest in to learn from them what they would want to see in an impact fund? And that process, you know, typical marketing process of understanding the needs of your customers led us to create Unaterra, specifically on the topic of reporting. I think there, as we know, there is plenty of, uh, you know, greenwashing. There is plenty of uh, very high level definition of, uh, oh, let's have some impact on sustainability, but with no real concrete agenda. So we wanted to be a lot more specific than that. We felt it was the only way to get credibility with uh, real impact investors and with companies that really want to make a difference. And I have to say, we found pretty quickly alignment among our partners. And then, you know, we got the help of a governance advisor to define how do you set up these uh, metrics in a way that makes sense over time for not only us as partners, but also the employees of the fund and everybody else uh, to be excited and challenged at the same time and make sure that... Uh, we progress as a team together. Nothing else than asking, uh, let me say, your customers and try to come up with a solution that is pragmatic. I am struggling with whether we should dive further into this topic now or or, <laughs> or just take a step back and ask you, Luca, how you came in. And I think, I think I'll actually let our audience know that Andreas just made a decision. We are going to turn back and just say, who the hell is Luca and the firm and so on. And then we'll come back to the topics of metrics and carry, because I think that those topics, both of them really deserve a deep dive conversation where we, you know, metrics being one of them, right? Where, you know, there's so many implications, both on the US, the VC, but also on the founders that you're investing in. And then as a consequence of you investing, they have to be able to live up to that. And then your growth stage investors, so there's, a bunch of stuff that needs to be somewhat put in place beforehand when you come in. So I think that there's so much to unpack there, but I just want to make sure that we have all our, in our audience, understanding who you are, because I think that there's a very worthwhile story there. So Luca, with that said, let's ask you the question, who is Luca? And why did you choose to dedicate your life to Unaterra and the climate and impact investing side of things? I would say, first of all, I'm a father of two boys, and uh, every change that I made in my career actually came with a change in uh, my family. And uh, every time I got more and more involved because of that, with the purpose that I identified probably about 15 years ago in my career, which is uh, sustainability and impact. Right. So my background, I'm an engineer. I have an MBA from the Wharton School, so balance between finance, if you want, and more business. I spent a long time in very large corporation, always high technology, B2B like Hewlett-Packard, Honeywell, Amcor. I also been the CEO of two private equity-backed companies. I've been at Bain in consulting for a number of years. But let me say, since I moved back from the US to Europe, which was 2010, I decided that every single company I was going to work for would have to have a significant impact on our world in terms of environment, social, etc. What we now maybe call ESG or impact, and at the time was maybe more CSR only, but I worked first in emission reduction for cars. Then I joined after a number of years packaging, which also was going through a lot of uh, turbulence related to sustainability. And I also started getting board positions in the same space. And ultimately, I decided that my time was limiting the impact I could have 
And so only by setting up an organization like Unaterra with a fund, with a team of people, and with the opportunity to leverage and support the work of a number of uh, founders, we could have a significant impact in innovation. And beyond that, I'm also advising large funds in private equity like Advent, Triton, KKR, etc., to impact their current portfolio in ESG rather than just wait for future innovation. So that's my life, and uh, I will continue to do that until I can, let's say. And just before we started recording here, we had a small conversation that I said, let's save that for the interview. Yes. And that was the reflection on your part between dedicating your time to innovation versus helping make a change in how we do business today in the existing companies. Um, I'd love to hear your reflections on that. Both are important. That's why I try to find time for both. In reality, I think innovation is key because it will allow us to transform entirely industries that uh, today are not sustainable. They're based on fossil fuels or whatever else uh, we have created. But in the meantime, we can't wait only for future innovation that will take uh, some time to uh, implement. And as a result, I want to work also on existing businesses that are already large enough. And so just by sheer scale, they can have a real impact, very likely not complete uh, to some extent as uh, when you will have uh, you know, new solutions, but uh, at least, uh, and a good point is you can do it right now. So I've always been very pragmatic in my career. I never said, oh, let's wait you know, for the future uh, solution. Even when I was in automotive, right, everyone was already talking about fuel cell and electric, but we wanted to find solution for the existing engines, and that's where I was working. So it's a bit similar in, in this sense today. We need to work both on the existing and on the future. Could you tell us a bit both the, the founding story there? And, you know, it's it's not just you, it's a hundred million euro fund. So <laughs> there's a whole group bit behind it. So could you tell us, you know, a bit about the makeup there? And and also we always start with the name saying Unaterra. Okay, here it's quite, quite self-explanatory, but, but feel free to tell us what, what that means. You know, I would say the funny thing is that I'm Italian, but I'm not the one who picked up the name. It's actually our Dutch uh, partner <laughs> that came up with the idea. And we actually took us through, a, you know, as a sort of process. To, to go through and, you know, we fell in love with this name because it's about, you know, having only one planet Earth and uh, not thinking that we can go to Mars or do something else, but we need to protect and regenerate what we have. So that's uh, Una Terra. And we hoped that, you know, even if it's Italian and maybe Spanish, many people would understand it anyway. That's the story of the name. The, the founding partners are really uh, friends, people that I respect uh, professionally. I worked with them a number of years before. Costas is a person that has set up his own company, advising very large corporation, mostly in fast-moving consumer goods and retail through three offices in New York, uh, London, and Amsterdam. Sold that company to Accenture three years ago and decided to join us and, and dedicate his uh, future to continue the work of understanding how to bring innovation and scale it up quickly commercially, but also as an investor. Chiara, who is uh, the other founding partner, uh, she has also a, let me say, fast-moving consumer good uh, career. To some extent, ashamed for her uh, experience uh, through Philip Morris, through Sarah <laughs> Mills, through a lot of these uh, monsters, now has decided to uh, spend more time on the sustainable side of things. And actually, to be honest, even already in those large corporations try to make a, a shift. But we met at the LMA Carter Foundation. We spent a significant time there, uh, specifically on the new plastic economy. So the whole area related to circular economy, which has become then the focus for us 
of this fund. We do believe the circular economy has a significant impact on climate change on one side, calculation, estimation, say 40% of climate change, and on the other side also on, you know, really closing the loop on many industries that today are very linear. And so there is not a very good end of life other than, you know, seeing plastic in the ocean or landfill. And so those are the areas where we can work mostly on packaging, waste management, apparel, agri-tech, sustainable food, and to some extent, fintech. So we try to be focused on those areas. There are not many funds that are working on that. I don't know if it's because it's not uh, such a clean and exciting uh, space like uh, others, but uh, it's one where there is a significant focus on from regulation, from the European Commission in particular, that is providing huge tailwinds for all the industry working there. And there is a lot more attention from consumers because it's physical, right? You see it. You see the waste, the trash that should not be around. And as a result, we can actually work together both as businesses and as consumer and people to develop a better world. And then maybe just to tie this to uh, the intro that David gave in the beginning. So you're part of the Uplink initiative. Uh, you were picked as one of the innovative funds for our future. Could you tell us a bit about what that's given you? Also the whole WEF connection, also how you're involved in that network as well as others, because I think that that's an interesting part and important part of the fund as well. We were very proud to be selected. And, you know, usually when we're part of an initiative, we're very serious about being really involved and not just, you know, get the benefit. So I participated personally and some of my partners to pretty much every single opportunity that uh, the World Economic Forum uplink has given us from the Climate Week in New York, the Federal Reserve, visit of some of the partners like Salesforce. And, uh, and, and as a result, you know, I think we have uh, gotten to become part of really the connection and the family. Davos in the beginning of the year and Geneva, there have been a lot of meetings. And it's good to know also the other participants. And yes, uh, I mentioned to you before, what is going to be our anchor investor is one of the most important things that a fund can get are actually is coming through this connection. Right, right after a podcast. Yes. And uh, of course, your podcast is at the top of the top of the agenda. And because, you know, no, seriously, I mean, we were very happy to be part of it because we know the reach and the opportunities that that brings as well. So one of the companies we invested in actually was a previous year top innovation uh, innovator from Uplink. So I think it's, uh, you know, as much as, you know, John always says we're at the beginning, it's two years, but, you know, because of the leverage of the World Economic Forum and everything else, I think it's becoming a serious opportunity for both funds and companies to cooperate in a much more value-aligned and system-aligned space. And, you know, we're going to Villar uh, next week, actually, where there's going to be another opportunity to connect globally, not just in Europe, with uh, all the funds and the companies that can have a say in this space. And just information for our audience here, I think that it's not daily, but it's at least multiple times in a week. I Someone raising a climate fund reaches out and says, hmm, do you know who I should talk to? And of course, we have a bunch of LPs that are looking into this space, but, you know, it's always then... I don't do an intro until I've spent some time looking at the fund and, you know, otherwise I'm very quickly just <laughs> passing through emails and that's not really value to anyone. But I always try and say that that especially climate is so collaborative and now with what Uplink is doing, it makes a lot of sense to orient yourself in that direction because obviously the World Economic Forum is the place where many of the family offices and very wealthy corporates and pension funds and so on 
orient and, and meet. So I, I really think that, especially in this space, there is a golden opportunity for fund managers to get involved and thus also be able to raise, uh, because th there's actually a place where people come together and say, I do want to invest in this space. <laughs> so that's a shout out to the audience. Now, before, and I know David is dying to get into the carry question, I just want to ask you about the metrics side first, because I think there's a natural progression from saying, okay, obviously your carry is going to be tied up to something that is going to be the metric. So let's talk about those metrics first and say the first thing that I think of when I see having strong metrics as, as something that you care about as a fund is, well, you also then care a lot about founders reporting on things. Um, <laughs> and obviously you're a late stage investor and that means that it's kind of a necessary thing at that stage that you're quite well established already. But we have a lot of early stage VCs listening in and there I'm seeing some funds now saying, but what we really do at the very early stages help founders and startups get started on building those metric systems and get the right habits in order and the right systems in order from the get-go. So I'd love to ask you if you could speak to that part of our audience and say, what is it that you as investor coming in at the growth stage are looking for? And what would you wish that the early stage investors had either taken care of already or had primed the uh, founders to think about? Um, I'm curious to hear. And also whether that's even important, right? You might also say, no, Andres, that's not a problem at all. First of all, uh, yes, metrics are, are important because they focus uh, the agenda, right? For, you know, they always say what is, you know, gets measured, gets done. It's very, it's very true, particularly when you are a small company and you have so many priorities and you have to focus on some, right? So first of all, what we've done is really focus on very simple metrics. We didn't want to have like a long list. Because long list also <laughs> becomes as if you didn't have any, right? And so we just said, let's pick one for climate change, and that has to be CO2 emission equivalent, right? So the most important greenhouse gases and everything else is converted to CO2 emission. And uh, on the other side, for biodiversity loss for ecosystem, we decided to use plastics weight because it's something that is already measured to a large extent as the reference. is only one of the many pollutants, unfortunately, that... Uh, we create what is probably by far the largest in terms of quantity, and it keeps growing despite all the activities of uh, trying to limit. So we decided to focus on that, uh, also because of our background, and, and we know the, the entire value chain very well. Right? So those two pillars are the one that we expect every company to measure. And to your point, right? if we see that already measured, great. If it's not measured, we will help the companies to start measuring it. It doesn't have to be done in a very fancy you know, sophisticated way with very complex tools, but has to be, you know, precise enough that we can use it uh, on a quarterly basis for our own reporting. So what we do, we uh, make sure that in the first meeting we do with uh, a company post-investment, we typically do a strategy meeting to align their aspiration where to play out to win with our understanding as well or where they want to go. And we also define in which areas our own involvement can help them in terms of implementation of the strategy? Do we need to introduce them to some customers? Do we need to, I don't know, help them entering a new market, etc.? And then also specifically on the sustainability side, how does sustainability integrate with their strategy and how do we create value uh, through sustainability? Because very often sustainability is seen as a way to reduce risk, not as a way to really create value. And I think in particular in innovation, we need to think of businesses in a way that are actually leveraging their position to create value through sustainability. So in practice, very simple on the metric side, tracking of the metrics 
and estimating that the companies we invest in have the potential at least to get to the scale that we need to achieve. So our target is to be able to contribute uh, two gigatons in terms of reduction of CO2 emission and one million tons of plastic waste over the life of our fund, which is a significant number, but I think is achievable if you think about the level of scale that the type of companies we look at can achieve. One question before we go to the carrier part. Is that also the metrics that you're then measuring yourself by, those two? Yes, of course. So it would not make sense otherwise. I think is that we need to be able to focus on um, the same areas that we would want the companies we work with to focus on. So absolutely. So we, we just basically consolidate at the fund level and we make sure that we have a range of uh, you know achievement that we want to get to. And then we review it uh, again at a quarterly level and uh, more detail at, at a yearly level with the partners team and with the investors. So we, we share those numbers also with the LPs, obviously. And so that means that if you don't reach the two gigaton mark, there's no carry for anyone. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, that pretty much means it's not, not too far from reality. So what we've done is, uh, I, actually, we have this discussion with uh, within the World Economic Forum, of course, you know, it's going to continue evolving because it's a very hot topic. We decided to do 50% of the carry in total. So 50% is connected to financial and 50% to this uh, environmental. It's probably the highest number seen so far. At some point, we will get to 100% probably, but there is only one other fund that we know of uh, that is called uh, Ocean Blue or Blue Ocean. In, in France that has put also 50% and also part of the innovative fund for our future. In reality, we believe that at some point businesses should exist only if they have a positive impact. So why should it be even 50? But let's say that we start and we go in that direction. And, and then, of course, what we've done is the typical range around the number, right, to allow for the imprecision of the process because we can't uh, know the future, the economy, you know, how many businesses we're going to invest in, et cetera, et cetera. We have the best possible idea that we can think about now. So we want to invest only in a limited number, probably 20, 25. Each of them put a significant investment, around 10 million each, over two or three rounds. Why? Because we want to support these companies for a long period of time and make sure that we give them as much as possible before leaving them to maybe a better investor that can take them to a much higher scale. And uh, in, in that period, we want to make sure that sustainability becomes part of the DNA of the company. And we speak a lot about environmental, but trust me, without having put numbers on it, we do care a lot also about diversity and inclusion and specifically gender. Out of the six investments we've done so far, four have a, a CEO and a founder that is a, a woman. And we've not done that on purpose. We've done that by finding the best possible leaders, we believe. And uh, as a result, I think in sustainability, there is a lot more leadership, at least from our perspective, from women. Our advisory board is majority women and our sustainability impact committee, which is a very important body to ensure that everything we do is by the book on sustainability. And it includes people from Cambridge Institute of Sustainable Leadership and from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Again, and there as well, 50-50 men and women. Similarly, in our team now, not the co-founders, but in the, in the full team, we are 50-50. So we, we try to do that because we think it's important. It also cannot go into a team uh, in a company and say, well, you should do this. And then you're like, your team is completely different, right? So You know, it's it, it might sound as an unfair question, but I think it, it, it's a question that has to be asked because I find it very hard to talk about impact and sustainability and governance without talking about greenwashing and, and how different organizations protect themselves, but also the teams for that and their stakeholders. So 
and and Carrie being I think in venture it's like the ultimate example right because that's that's how everyone gets fat in the long term so if I understood correctly you took roughly half of your carry pool assuming everything else is standard right I, I I'm assuming that but let's let's keep it simple and you just said that well we're measuring you know co2 reduction or co2 equivalent reduction plastic reduction we have some numbers here we have some ranges but there's this hard data that we know if we under deliver by X our carry under delivers between brackets by y or completely gone right depending on what that amount is how do you make sure that you're not inflating the impact numbers? It's incredibly hard to get these numbers. And then the last thing you want as a GP is to kind of put that onus on the founders, right? That's the last thing you want to do. And they're, then they're stuck in this clusterfuck of reporting just so you can get your, your carry, right? That's exactly why there has to be a third-party involvement, right? So that's why we had to create what we call the, not our name, actually, we asked them to select their own name. It is called Sustainability Impact Committee. And again, there are a number of, you know, impressive people there. So there is a person that uh, at the LMA Carter Foundation is in charge of all the initiatives, pretty much so from the new plastic economy to apparel to food, etc. And then a professor at the uh, Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership that is also the person that coordinated the creation of uh, a global standard for ISO for purpose-led organization. These people actually then, uh, on a regular basis, can hire and rely on special technical consultant in sustainability that know how to do an LCA, know how to do a carbon assessment. We would not be the one doing it, and we cannot ask, to your point, to go at this level of detail to founders that have plenty of other things to do, but we need to make sure that is part of their day-to-day, the fact that these numbers are important. Then the fact that someone else has to come in and measure it is a little bit like, you know, someone coming and measuring, I don't know, the energy you're using in your plants. So it's the same thing, right? So you need to have someone that is a specialist and also is neutral, right? No one can be paid, for instance, through carry if uh, in the end, you know, they're the ones saying you're going to get your carry or not. So yes, we had to set up all these governance processes. And I can tell you, like, that's the reason why we spent so much time at the beginning on governance between Luxembourg and our holding company in Switzerland to ensure that uh, all the checks and balances are done in a way that there is pretty much zero risk for and zero tolerance for greenwashing, which I think is one of the worst things that's happening to the industry right now because it creates even less credibility on something that uh, should be a place where we all collaborate and trust each other. Maybe um, intellectual slash philosophical follow-up question there. You said something interesting, which is you said, we're at 50-50, one day we'll be at 100 in terms of uh, financial performance, impact performance. So just to give some context to our listeners as well, I think that UVC, Andreas and myself mostly had like two big kind of roles slash priorities in engaging with Uplink in this project. And the first one was obviously helping get the word out there for the European GPs, because that's that's our bread and butter, right? But the second one was also, and this is behind the scenes, so that's why I'm, I'm saying it to our listeners as well, is like just being sure that we weren't kind of compromising impact versus financial performance, but also the other way around. So that we weren't using the term impact-driven fund to justify underperformance or worse results. So my intellectual slash philosophical question to you is, well, do you actually believe that going 100% impact performance-driven carry is the way to go? I feel almost compelled to say, well, isn't 50-50 the ideal already? I don't know. What, what do you actually, think? look, yes. I mean, if you ask me like that, <laughs> I think, you know, 50-50 is also what would not scare in this initial phase, you know, like you also have to attract the best possible talent. You may need to make sure you get people who are super commitment of impact, but also super committed of being 
outperforming on the financial side because the worst thing we can do is to say impact equals, you know, no money, but then, you know, that becomes philanthropy or something else. So the whole point is that I truly believe because of my experience in various uh, companies, et cetera, that sustainability can generate an immense amount of profit if done well. And is also the way that I position that in much bigger private equity funds than the one that we have here. Uh, so it's all about value creation. It's not about, you know, fair trade and child labor. Those are all great things that need to happen, but they cannot live very long if there is not someone else that is financing the impact. And as a result, we need to have a big part of the plan generating value. So for me, like the 50-50 was a very, very good balance uh, between making sure that we are clear that this has to be top decile return venture capital. And also because we have one more lever than others, which is we are in the midst of the biggest transition, economic, social transition that any of us will ever see. And uh, I truly believe that all the unicorns that will come out like uh, our friends at BlackRock are saying, will come out from the transition from the ESG perspective, even if we probably don't agree with the way they do it. But I was about to say, so I'm from socialist Denmark. I don't think I've ever in my life heard our friends at BlackRock. <laughs> no, I believe, I believe, you know, like there is a lot of, uh, to be honest, a lot of greenwashing that they're doing as well and a lot of just checking the box kind of stuff, even if the rhetoric is very good and the communication is very good. I hope that we have good communication, but a lot better uh, content. Let's say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But look, you said something just before, and it's the final question I'll ask before the quick fire. And it might be opening up a conversation that we can continue in Villar over a couple of years. I tend to think that there are two types of people dedicating their life to climate and sustainability. There's one camp that's the optimists and are, are coming from a position that basically think that the world will, we will survive. And if we were not looking at a doomsday prophecy, and then there's the others that are more skeptic and saying, okay, we're going to do it. I'm going to take a stab at it, but I am not very happy about the outlooks of our planet. I'm curious to ask you, where are you on this scale? I have to say, first of all, I'm usually an optimistic by background, which uh, helps me going through the craziness of fundraising in VC. But I also have to say that, you know, we have a lot of signals that tells us that the world, the, the physical world, the environment is moving a lot faster than we thought. So we don't even know if 1.5 degrees or whatever is enough. The honest answer is that it doesn't change a bit what I'm doing every day because you know, whichever way, I will do everything I can. You say, starting from the small, my family, uh, all the next generation, uh, all the people who live on the earth, uh, all the animals and plants uh, that I love so much. And I, you know, since I was a kid, I was very happy to travel around the world and see how wonderful it is. So in reality, we have no other option, right? It's, we still have to do it. We don't have a, the luxury of some people uh, who think that we can travel to Mars and uh, create another planet. That's not an option. So here is the option is to actually find more people that want to help and collaborate with us. And that's where, in the end, you know, it's, it's up to us to uh, find ways to uh, enjoy also the process as we go through. And then you're living in Switzerland. So I guess you're well positioned in the sense that climate change will make, make skiing worse, as we just spoke about before. But hopefully not too much else. Uh, <laughs> no, we're we're very we're super lucky, right? Because we're in the middle of mountains and lakes, and uh, oh my god, if the if the high water comes here, we we're you know very deep everywhere. Yeah, you're pretty solid. Yeah, <laughs> and and mass migration is also 
it's a bit tough with all the mountains and stuff. So you can probably protect yourself against that as well. So I guess Switzerland is my next stop. Yes, we'll, uh, we'll wait for you. We're very welcoming here. I'll be coming to Villar next week and then maybe we can go house shopping at the same time. My wife will have a surprise for her then. <laughs> yeah. Shopping in Switzerland is never a good plan. I have to tell you that. It's too expensive. Uh, so house shopping. House shopping. House shopping is good, yes. House shopping. Yeah. Good, David. Take us <laughs> to the quick fire before we get in trouble. We always end the episodes with a quick fire round. Quick fire round is when I ask you quick answer questions. 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready for it? Ready. And the first question. What areas, technologies, or sectors excite you the most that people around you don't really feel that excited about? To me, is everything related to waste management. Uh, and, and the reason for that is that uh, people don't get excited about waste in general, right? It's not the, you think about waste and you see all the dirt, you don't get excited about it. But while climate change, I think there are opportunities pretty much everywhere in the world because it's an energy and, uh, you know, it's uh, opportunities in the US. There is a big, uh, you know, uh, Inflation Reduction Act now supporting, et cetera. Europe is probably the only place where we have such an advanced discussion on the, how to make the circular economy really working uh, in everything from uh, packaging to uh, apparel to uh, you know all the industries that let me say by definition are much more European like like fashion like uh, food like maybe a little bit Italian I would say as well so yeah maybe too long. Of an answer, but that's the area where I'm more excited. No, no, waste waste management, great one. Second question of the quick fire: What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising for their own funds? My top tip is, uh, apart from being in touch with you first and also Uplink, I would say resilience. You have to be very resilient in fundraising. I have a lot of respect for people who do that on a normal basis. Uh, I don't know how they do it. I'm already very tired, but <laughs> but is I think it's also good to find the right investors. So you you really get to know people deep in their values, and that's great. We at UVC we also admire very much people who are resilient in their fundraising efforts, and that's why we've dedicated our lives and businesses to support GPs as well. So I'm super super excited that you said that. Third and final question, Luca: What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? What's more counterintuitive for me is that a lot of people believe they have a great solution, but they don't think of everything that is already out there very often. So they think they can change pretty much everything from the platform to the infrastructure, etc. even if because of their... So it's a bit you know self-centric. Uh, what we try to think of is more solutions that are fantastic and can change entire industries, but without having to change everything else. And as a result because they don't require crazy level of investment, are much easier to implement. So in that sense, we're very commercial uh, because we know that uh, how much, you know, corporations don't like to put uh, a lot of money on the table for just changing another machine. We tend to work on uh, easy-to-adopt technologies, even when they're dramatically different. So the respect, let me say the respect for uh, what's already out there. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Luca. It was awesome. I thank you for playing along with the, uh, <laughs> the the discussion about the future of the planet Earth. It's a very, it was a fun and deep conversation at the same time. So I look forward to continuing this week in Villar. Thank you so much for having me and uh, go Una Terra. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the European VC. 
the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.